Good morning. It is good to be back uh, and to see you. I pass Forest Hills Baptist Church each Sunday. Um, we go to a place, we fellowship, we fellowship at a place called Forest Hills Bible Chapel. And so I'm speaking slowly because I'm worried I'm going to mix, mix it up. Um, but we see, um, we pass by this place each Sunday and I think, remember when we were there, kids? And uh, I, I say it like every Sunday. Remember when we were there, kids? And they say, that's the place that gave the candy for saying the verses that we already know. So uh, they, I couldn't persuade them to come with me today, but they do remember being here fondly. Um, most of Jesus' life was boring. And don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely fascinated with the person of Jesus Christ. And as a committed follower and believer, I, I, I believe his life, death, and resurrection is the apex of all of human history, the, the culmination of all God's purposes. And yet, the evidence suggests from the Bible that Jesus' life mostly was boring. Luke chapter 2 gives us a small insight into what was going on when Jesus was 12 years old. You remember that scene, right, where his parents go on and they forget that he's back at the temple and they go back and they find him. And what's he doing there? Is he like walking on water? Is he raising the dead? He's sitting. He's listening. He's asking questions. A couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives his inaugural sermon and uh, he stands up at the synagogue and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and, and so on. And all the people who are listening to Jesus, they say, like, you? Really? I mean, you're from around here. It's in Nazareth. So we remember, we know your parents, we know your brothers and your sisters. And this is the guy that used to play ball with us and used to... Him? So great was the incarnation, uh, the emptying of the Lord Jesus, that although he never stopped being fully God, and he was always sinless, that would have been remarkable, uh, still, the people around him didn't get a show every day. He was unnoticeable in that regard. We might wonder, what happens between the normal kind of boring, everyday Jesus of Luke 2 and, and the incredible events when he explodes on the scene and there's miracles all over and the mission of God starts in Luke chapter 4? You can see it behind me. That, that's what happens. Luke 3 happens between Luke 2 and Luke 4. Luke chapter 3, when Jesus steps into the Jordan River and he is baptized by John, and it is there that the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. It is the Holy Spirit 
that makes that dramatic difference. So what happened? The Holy Spirit happened. And John the Baptist, he, he says, he says it in Luke 3, and then we're reminded of his words in, in Acts chapter 1, in the previous unit, which I'm assuming you went through not too long ago. John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus is the one who has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. As he travels throughout Galilee and uh, preaches in the synagogues, he does his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the title for our talk today is Power from on High, and we'll be looking at Acts chapter 2. And uh, first we'll look at the placement of Pentecost in the wider scope of Luke-Acts. And then we've got a decent amount of text in front of us. We'll look at the events of Pentecost in uh, 2, 1 to 13. And then we'll look at the explanation of Pentecost in 14 to 40. But let's begin by thinking about where this occurs in the broad uh, scope of Luke-Acts. Luke has written his... Is there a way that I can, like, turn this off? This is good, but I feel like people are just going to try to read that, and they can't read it. Just go back here. Okay. Um, in a very real way, Acts chapter 2, the events of Pentecost, um, is the, the end of Jesus' ministry. This is where it's all been going in Luke's telling of the story. Again, thinking about how John the Baptist frames and sets up the ministry of Jesus. He says, I'm just baptizing you with water, but there's someone who's coming after me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the way Luke has set up, this is the job, this is the vocation of Jesus. He's the Holy Spirit baptizer. That's what he came to do. In Jesus's uh, Last Supper, Luke's account of it, he says, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In fact, Luke's the only one who uses the word new covenant. The, the, the other gospel traditions say the covenant. Luke says it's the new covenant, specifically echoing like Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, where the Holy Spirit is promised. He's come to die on the cross. Why? So the Holy Spirit can come. In fact, this is the way the Gospel of Luke ends, with Jesus saying in 24, 29, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in a very real way, Acts 2 is, is the end of Jesus' ministry. It's what he came for. Acts chapter 2, with the events of Pentecost, also signal for us the repetition of Jesus' ministry. Luke has written his gospel and the, and the book of Acts in such a way that the events parallel one another. I like this chart here from Mark Allen Powell, and unless you like have binoculars or something, you're not going to be able to read it. So let me just read, read it off to you, but it's progressing uh, chronologically, or at least you know, through the text. And right over here is going to be Luke, 
Right over here is going to be Acts. All right, Luke and Acts. All right, let's go. Uh, we have the preface to Theophilus. Preface to Theophilus. The Spirit descends on Jesus as he prays. The Spirit comes to the apostles as they pray. This, a sermon declares prophecy is fulfilled. A sermon declares prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus heals a lame man. Peter heals a lame man. Religious leaders attack Jesus. Religious leaders attack Jesus. Then a centurion invites Jesus to his house. Then a centurion invites Peter to his house. Then Jesus raises a widow's son from death. Then Peter raises a widow from death. Then there's a missionary journey to the Gentiles. Then there's a missionary journey to the Gentiles. Then P Jesus travels to Jerusalem. Then Paul travels to Jerusalem. Then Jesus is received favorably. Then Paul is received favorably. Then Jesus is devoted to the temple. And then Paul is devoted to the temple. Then the Sadducees oppose Jesus, but the scribes support him. Then the Sadducees support Paul, but scribes support him. Then Jesus breaks bread and gives thanks. Then Paul breaks bread and gives thanks. Then Jesus is seized by an angry mob. Then Paul is seized by an angry mob. Then Jesus is slapped by the high priest's aides. Then Paul is slapped by the high priest's command. Then Jesus is tried four times and declared innocent three times. Then Paul is tried four times and declared innocent three times. Then Jesus is rejected by the Jews. Then Paul is rejected by the Jews. Then Jesus is regarded favorably by a centurion. Then, Je then Paul is regarded favorably by a centurion. Then there's a final confirmation that the scriptures have been fulfilled. Then there's a final confirmation that the scriptures have been fulfilled. Organize this material to say the stuff that happens in Acts, like you probably heard about earlier, is the beginning. The stuff in, in Luke is the beginning of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The book of Acts continues that work. Makes me think of a relay race. They still do like uh, field days in school. You remember those field days? It's like an all day recess. It's the, it was the climax of the entire year, the zenith of the whole thing. And uh, I loved field day, and I particularly loved relay races, because if it was just a simple race, then the whole school just watched me be last in line. But in a relay race, you don't really know who's to blame. So, uh, the, but the way a relay r race works is you line people up, and you're on a team, and you get one person who does, is usually something goofy like you put a spoon on your nose and you go to the finish line and then you hand the spoon or the baton to the next person and then it's his turn. That's what we have in Luke Acts. Jesus has done it and now he says, it's your turn. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It's the passing of the baton. And now it's the church's job to take over. The presence of the Holy Spirit means that the church has the same program as Jesus. The same purpose. The same power. You ever catch yourself like reading about the stories of Jesus in the Gospels? And to be honest, there's part of you that says, yeah, but he's Jesus. So of course he's doing that because, well, he's the Son of God. But to then realize that he does what he does by the Spirit of God and that we have the same Holy Spirit is an incredible thing. My last point is that, uh, as far as the placement goes, is that this represents an intensification of Jesus' ministry. 
Sometimes Pentecost is called the birthday of the church. And I have no problem with that. I, I can agree to that. However, this can be a little bit misleading. As in like, Acts chapter 2 is when everything begins. Well, sort of. But Acts chapter 2 is when the disciples are then put in the driver's seat. They're just continuing the work which Jesus has already been doing. Extending that mission. And in fact, intensifying it. Just like Jesus receives the Spirit, and then he stands up and he preaches in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, so there's 120 people praying, and the Holy Spirit falls on all of them, and they all begin to prophesy and to speak as God gives them utterance. Now, of course, the, the, the spotlight shines on Peter. He's the spokesman. We shouldn't forget the fact that they're all speaking. The Pharisees attempt to stop the Jesus movement by killing Jesus. But that was like trying to put out a grease fire with water. It only just spread the fire further and made, from their perspective, the problem much worse. Again, in Acts 2, we have 120 people in the upper room. And then we have 3,000 receiving that same Holy Spirit. Or to change the imagery a little bit from a grease fire, it's, it's, like the disciples, it's, it's like the disciples are like Elisha, and they've seen their master Elijah ascend up into heaven, and they have received a double portion of his spirit. Let's think now a little bit about the events of Pentecost. Finally, I'm getting to the text. That was all introduction. We can now start looking at this incredible passage of Scripture. Let's start in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled, all were together in the same place. Suddenly, out of heaven, a noise came, like a strong, rushing wind, and it filled the whole, ho whole house where they were sitting. And divided tongues like fire appeared and sat on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them to declare. Now, Jesus, now Jews were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now that sound of what happened assembled the crowd, and they were astonished because they heard them speaking in their own language, each of them. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Are these speakers not all Galileans? How then do we hear in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Galatia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene and those staying in Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our own languages the greatness of God. And all were astonished and perplexed. Others were saying, what can these things mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Here, uh, let's think a little bit about the I don't know, uh, the events, uh, the setting, what's, what's happening. We have, again, 120 men and women who are all praying together. Um, and notice very carefully what, what, their, what their purpose is. Uh, Jesus has told them to wait and pray. Their agenda 
is to pray and seek that the Lord's will would be done. That's it. Not knowing for sure what's going to happen next. They're not trying, they don't have some sort of a master game plan. This whole thing has been figured out ahead of time. They're praying. That's all. And it's as they're praying, the Holy Spirit descends. We're not quite sure if this is like a, a literal fire or if this is just like a vision that they see. But they are baptized with the Holy Spirit is the language that's used. In chapter 1, here in chapter 2, it's called a filling. And later on as he talks about uh, the fulfillment of Joel, he says the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Sometimes theologians like to differentiate all these different acts of the, of the Holy Spirit. But it seems like Luke is just using all these words interchangeably. God's got the Holy Spirit. It's like he's got a giant tank of Holy Spirit and he's just dumping it down on planet Earth. He's pouring it out and the people are just washed with it. It's, it's filling them. It's everywhere. It's like a great wind. So you don't want to get too particular with the different uh, verb choices that are used. They now have the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they speak in other languages. Now, depending on the translation that you have, some will read other languages, some will read other tongues, which is what the the Greek text actually is. But just like Greek, uh, so with English, the word tongue is just used as um, the figure of speech is called a metonymy, uh, where the tongue stands for what it's doing. It's speaking a language. So we have expressions like a mother tongue or a foreign tongue or something like that. But notice very carefully the number they spoke, is it with, other, with another tongue or with other tongues? Which one is it? I know you're not charismatic, but you can, you know, just tell me. Does it say tongue or tongues? Tongues. They speak in other tongues, right? There's 120 of them. So the idea is not that the Holy Spirit comes and then they all speak one different new language. That's not it. Instead, there's a a, a diversity of languages which are being spoken, which fits the scene well because there are people from all over. They had not taken the time to learn these other languages. Notice also that the the miraculous thing which happens in Acts chapter 2 is not uh, with the ear, it's with the mouth. The miraculous thing that happens is not that people can understand what's going on. The miraculous thing that happens is that there are, new, there are these languages which are being spoken which had never been learned before. And people are just walking by, and, and then all of a sudden they go, wait a minute, I haven't heard somebody speak that language in a while. How did you, how were you able to speak that language? And the other people who are passing by, they don't recognize any language. And so they think these people, it doesn't make any sense. Now, my purpose is to kind of get a big picture of the significance of Pentecost. So there is a big part of me that's tempted to just spend a long time thinking about this thing called speaking in tongues and what's happening there and whether or not this, there's a, that's a repeated pattern for today. If you're really careful, you'll be able to see where I land on this whole issue. But I just want to point out a few things. Um, they're actual real other languages. This is a sovereign work of God the most significant observation that I can make that I think is the most practical as far as addressing the question of whether or not this is a pattern for us today is 
that the disciples were praying, seeking God's will to be done, and God made it happen. The disciples were not seeking an experience, but they were seeking the Lord. And they didn't like pass out flyers, like, come learn how to speak in tongues. We're, gonna, we're all going to speak in tongues. It'll be 6 p.m. Come by. If you haven't done it before, it'll be the new thing for you. Instead, they met and prayed. My approach to this whole thing has been, uh, my job is to submit myself to the Lord. And I've said, Lord, you can have your way with me. If you want me to do something, I'll do it. I'm not going to stand in your way to make myself available to, to his work in my life. Now, as they are preaching, the people ask, what do these things mean? What a great question. As an expositor and as a preacher, it's a perfect question. It's like that kid who raises his hand in your class and says, and just perfectly anticipates your next point. So why are you telling us all this? I'm so glad that you asked. What do these things mean? And so Peter steps forward and he says, I'll tell you what these things mean. Let's start reading in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they, the, the old men, the young men, the, the, the male servants and female servants, they all will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to pause there. We'll come back and read more. I want to stop right there for now. Peter explains the significance of Pentecost at first with this long quote from Joel. At first, when I'm reading it, it makes a lot of sense. Of course you would want a quote from Joel. The Holy Spirit is coming. And there's a lot of stuff about everybody. You know, there's men and women, and so that kind of matches nicely with this bit from Joel. Um... But then, I think, what's all this stuff? You notice that? The blood and the fire, the vapor and the smoke. Now, the way that quotations are made in the first century and in all sorts of different documents, biblical and non-biblical, it's entirely within their purview to use ellipsis, to just do a dot, dot, dot. He very easily could have said, and your old men, your young men, they'll dream dreams. My male servants, my female servants, I'll pour out my spirit, dot, dot, dot. You know, the text goes on. And whoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
In fact, Peter does that. Biblical authors do that sort of thing all the time. He doesn't do that. And I'm sure his listeners were there thinking, all right, I can see, I can see the spirit stuff. I can see the, the prophesying. But, you know, I don't see the smoke and the fire and the blood. Right? What's going on there? The Holy Spirit, his arrival, signals for Peter that the end times have come. In other words, he has this scriptural paradigm that this is the way it works. He's got his, he, it's like he's got his Bible chart in his mind. And he says, okay, so this is the way that it's going to work. The, si- the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be exalted. And he's going to get the Holy Spirit. And then it's going to be judgment day. And he doesn't know how long it's going to be. I don't know. Hours? Days? Maybe weeks? But this is the way that it happens. The Holy Spirit comes, and there is no like, and then there will be a nice long period of time in this quotation from Joel. They're placed back to back. The Holy Spirit comes, and it's judgment day. The Holy Spirit comes, and so he starts to, not quite panic, but say, okay, that means we don't have much time left. That means judgment is coming. In fact, if you you can see the text box there in white, uh, Joel goes on. He says in 3, 13 to 16, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. In other words, Peter's outlook is that the day of the Lord is like a tornado. And the spirit is like the tornado alarm. When that alarm is sounded, it means we've got to go into the basement and find safety. Now, later, in 2 Peter, he'll write this letter in which he'll say, listen, the reason, he, 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 he's aware of the fact that people are starting to make fun of him, that the, there's been a delay and it hasn't been quite as close as he initially thought or the rest of the apostles initially thought. So he anticipates the subjection. Why is it that there's been a delay? He says it's because God is so so much kinder than we can imagine. It's because he wants everyone to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why. But that kindness of God should not reduce the urgency of the Holy Spirit's presence. So Peter reaches out. The significance of Pentecost is that this means... The, the, the clock is started to tick down, and it means that judgment is coming soon. Notice the people to whom, Paul, um, to whom Peter preaches. He describes them as devout men. These are churchy people. And yet his message to them is, 
Judgment day is coming. So you've got, I've got a message. And you've got to hear it. Religious, pious people. I mean, I'm talking to the choir here. Of all the people, you're the ones who have gotten yourselves up on a Sunday morning, got dressed, and come to church. These people are the ones who are keeping Torah. They are the ones who are obeying God's word in a a world of iniquity and sin and people who just don't care about the one true and living God. These people care and they've come to the feast. And Peter's message to them is, you need to be saved. And judgment day is coming and, and I want you to hear this message. It reminds me of this time um, when I was living in Detroit and I was doing a particular, I was doing a, a evangelism with a group of people and I had um, set up this board and we were talking to people outside um, in an area around Detroit and um, there's this man who had stopped and listened to my whole presentation. It was like 15 minutes or something. And, So I started talking to him, and I kind of eased my way into the conversation a little bit. And I said, so do you have a spiritual background or any, any, you know, religious upbringing? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in, he said, I'm in ministry. Well, that's fantastic. You're in ministry. I said, well, as I'm sure, you know, I noticed, you noticed from my my talk, I talked a lot about the importance of of being saved. And so I just got to ask, are you saved? The look on his face. I remember that. Well, I just told you. I'm in ministry. To which I responded, and I just asked you, are you saved? Don't confuse being devout, religious, churchy, in ministry with being saved. Peter's first sermon recorded for us is to churchy people, devout men, telling them they need to be saved. It is necessary for them to call on the name of the Lord. But who is that Lord? Upon whom must they call? That's Peter's second really big point. Not only that they must be saved by calling on the name of the Lord, but then he moves in, he says, and this is the Lord specifically on whom you must call. Pay attention to how Peter develops this theme starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died, he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, 
and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, okay, pay attention here to verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, We have a baptism scheduled in a couple weeks. I'd strongly encourage you to think about the possibility of being baptized. That's not what he says. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. All right, there's a lot in this passage, but I want to draw out a few really big ideas. Um, he, he, the, the point of all of this is to say, the, the Lord upon whom you must call is Jesus. And, and he demonstrates that by going through uh, the, the fulfillment of prophecy that although he was crucified and rejected, this was all part of God's plan. It's been hiding in plain sight the whole time. It's always been there for us in the Psalms. You killed him, but it was all part of God's plan of the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And that's why he's there. And, and, and that's why Jesus is the Lord. But there's a second, equally significant way he demonstrates that Jesus is the Lord. Not only were the apostles witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, but the people who were there, they were all witnesses. They had seen something. They had seen definite proof that Jesus is Lord. They had seen the proof that God had made Jesus Lord and Christ. What was it? It was the Holy Spirit. Of course Jesus is the Lord, is the way this argument goes. Because the Holy Spirit's here. How could the Holy Spirit be here if Jesus wasn't ascended? This is kind of the, the logic behind it. Um, the premises which allow him to make the sort of thing is he's got this view in which uh, the scriptures predict that the Messiah would be exalted and throned. And then again from verse 33, he would receive the, the promise, he would receive the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. The Messiah would. Well, the scriptures said that the Messiah would receive the Holy Spirit. How do we know that the Messiah has received the Holy Spirit? He's at the right hand of God. 
And short of God, like, opening up the heavens and letting us look into, like, this heavenly throne room, I mean, how are we going to see that the risen Christ has the Holy Spirit, right? Well, he's given the Holy Spirit to us. That's how we know that Jesus has been exalted and has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. I absolutely love how Peter argues not to the presence of the Holy Spirit, but from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people talk about the Holy Spirit like this, like it's in a basic Bible study lesson, and they're like, not, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, not only did you receive the forgiveness of sins, but let me tell you something. You also received the Holy Spirit. Oh, did I? Yes, let me tell you about this gift that you got. He's called the Holy Spirit, and you may have not, not have noticed it. And so then we're, we're telling the person. That's not the way Peter argues. He's, he, he, the presence of the Spirit has like apologetic value. And it, it, it's something from which he then argues, of course Jesus has been ascended. I think we should follow in Peter's footsteps here. Now, I love to get into good academic arguments, sometimes with people who know what they're talking about, sometimes with people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, there are some things, however, that I cannot be argued out of. Sometimes people can make a good case, and I'll be like, all right, let me, you got me on that one, let me think about that. But if, if you were to be obnoxious, let's say, and you wanted to try to talk me out of the fact that I'm married, and you just said, listen, Bruce, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's like a, you're not really married. And, and, and somehow you just were exceptionally clever, and you put together a rock-solid argument. Listen, you can't argue that out of me. I mean, I, I know her. I know Anna. I'm, I'm married to her. I have a relationship with her. In the same way, there is no sophisticated argument that you could give to me that would convince me that I do not know the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. I hope His presence is real in your life. You say, well, I know God. I have the Holy Spirit. And in fact, his presence is so real that I can, it must mean that Jesus is the Lord because I have the Holy Spirit. That's the way the argumentation works. We spend our time thinking about the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the larger narrative of Luke-Acts. It means that, uh, and, and also about the events of it in 2, 1 to 13, and the explanation of it in 2, 14 to 40. Uh, these three sections have shown us three reasons why the Holy Spirit came. I hope that you're really excited about the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is a great text of Scripture, that it matters. I mean, you don't ha again, you don't have to be Pentecostal, but you have to be Pentecostal. You don't need to be like capital P Pentecostal. But, but Paul says in Romans, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of God, he's not his. If the events of Pentecost in some way haven't happened to you, if, you're not, if you can't say, no, I mean, I have the Holy Spirit, well, then you're not saved. If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he's none of his. 
The Holy Spirit must characterize the church, must characterize us. And this message that we've been thinking about give us three significances of the Holy Spirit coming. One, the first one that we saw was that it means that we are on the same mission as Jesus. I, I decided to lead with this, not only because it kind of frames us in the overall narrative, but it, it, it means that um, the reason God has given the church the Holy Spirit is to empower them to continue and extend the same mission of Jesus Christ. That's why. Jesus started something. What he began to do, Luke says, we must continue it. Second, Pentecost matters because it means the world is in the valley of decision, to use the language of Joel. The judgment is real, the Holy Spirit is real, and that means judgment is real. God hasn't forgotten about the plan that was predicted in the prophets. Time is running out. There's an urgency to the message of salvation. And lastly, the Holy Spirit matters because it's the evidence, it's the proof that Jesus is the Lord. It guarantees that his name is the only name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Uh, the Spirit is the guarantee that the ascension took. It's not like Jesus just zoomed off into outer space and then is lost somewhere. How do we know that he's at the right hand of God? Well, it's because he's given us the Holy Spirit. Certainly, our experiences of the Holy Spirit go up and down. And I'm not saying that every single day of my life is like an Acts chapter 2 Pentecostal experience where it's, it's so palpable and real. But on the other hand, um, the Holy Spirit is uh, a concrete reality that God has given. He is the power that has been given to us from on high.